A few weeks ago, I received a uh, note from one of my college pledge brothers. We were in a service organization called the Chamber of Commerce. My old friend wrote me this, and I quote, Hey, dork, <clears throat> it's been too long. Let's get the guys together and do some good. It will help make up for all the dumb stuff you're no doubt wasting your time on right now. <laughs> Close quote. Now, I couldn't make the get-together that he had planned because I was teaching here, but a number of the guys did gather, and they sent me texts about it. I got a bunch of texts that weekend. One of the men sent me a note describing how shocked he was, how they all were, to sit back and review all the amazing amount of work that we got done while we were in that college service group. They were, they were just astounded at all we accomplished. Uh, so I wrote this one guy back. Um, I said, hey, I just read The Black Prince by Jones. By the way, just so you know, this guy was a history major in college, so he reads, he reads wonderful, nerdy history books like I do. If you don't know The Black Prince, Edward, uh, son of Edward III, would have been Edward IV had he lived, not become ill. He was the greatest English medieval warrior, maybe one of the greatest warriors who ever lived. Uh, so I wrote him, I said, I just read The Black Prince by Jones. Have you read it yet? Jones gives a great quote that helps explain how God did so much through a bunch of young idiots like us. And here's the quote. The great strength of the English military command was its closeness and sense of trust. These were men who enjoyed working together and could take important steps with speed and confidence. Close quote. Isn't that great? In fact, I, I thought that so profound, I copied it into your notes um, there inside your bulletin. You got a worship guide when you came in. Look inside that worship guide, and, um, and you'll see uh, that quote there on the left-hand side. Speaking of our notes, uh, and by the way, if you're seated somewhere toward the back and you're in the middle section, if you could just kind of jostle toward the middle a bit and make room, there's people walking in and they're looking for spots to sit, and uh, they're telling them to sit on your laps, and I don't think that's a good idea, so... Um, if you'll move, thank you, that's very kind. Speaking of our notes, it was a few days after those texts with all my old friends that I began working on our study of the Bible book Philippians. And I realized that all that chatter with my old co-workers, that was a perfect preparation for diving into today's portion of God's Word. Open your Bible to Philippians and, and you'll come to see what I mean about how those jokes with the guys were a perfect prep for this particular passage. Philippians is in your New Testament. It's right after Ephesians, right after Galatians, before Colossians. Philippians chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every one of the descriptors here has a powerful lesson for us. We're going to start with the authors. Let's start with Paul and Timothy. They are the authors. They're also the church planters for the church at Philippi. A um, little quick background on them. On a church planting trip with a guy named Barnabas, the Apostle Paul led a young man to Christ. And then on a later journey with a guy named Silas, Paul revisited that young man again and invited him to join them on their missionary journey. That, young's man name, that young man's name was Timothy. Paul was God's apostle to the Gentiles. He planted churches all over the eastern and northern Mediterranean. We'll get to know a lot more about him as we study this book. At the time of writing this letter to the Philippians, Paul is under arrest in Rome awaiting trial. Um, it's a long story. There were certain elements in Roman society that were very dismayed about the growth of Christianity. And so they made up these false charges. They trumped up false charges against Paul and had him arrested. Timothy is with Paul in Rome for the moment. Uh, Timothy's serving as a kind of secretary come co-author for all of Paul's correspondence. Now, 
As with most things in the life of Paul, nobody summarizes it better than F.F. F. Bruce. The old Scottish scholar, F.F. F. Friedrich Fosdak Bruce, he summarizes really well. Here's his description of Timothy. Here's what he says about Tim. Paul knew that Timothy was naturally diffident by temperament. When he sends him, for example, as his representative to the turbulent church at Corinth, he has to ask his friends there not to underestimate Timothy. But Paul had the utmost confidence in entrusting him with responsible and delicate missions. Paul wholeheartedly appreciated the selfless devotion with which Timothy supported and served him. What a wonderful comrade Timothy is. Here's a, let, me, let me give you this. Here's a perfect example of what an amazing person Timothy was. You ready for this? Later in Philippians, we're going to notice that Paul is giving a, a beautiful, powerful description of the person of Jesus Christ. That immediately makes him think of Timothy. Isn't that incredible? He's describing Jesus, and that makes him think of Timothy. Here's how it fleshes out. Philippians 2. He's just finished describing Jesus, and he says, Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have, listen to this, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. That is amazing. Timothy seeks Jesus' interest. May that be said of us, all of us. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Now, notice that in the greeting to Philippi, the authors of this letter, Paul and Timothy, call themselves slaves. They use the Greek term doulos. It is an incredibly significant word for anybody studying the Bible. If you've studied with me before, you have likely heard me uh, explain doulos because it appears very often in the New Testament. Today, let's try a new way. Let's try a new angle to try and get a handle of what doulos means. One of my former students has decided very recently to switch careers. Um, he resigned his commission as a police officer after five years on the force, and he signed on to a really old-world type of apprenticeship. Um, for the next three years, this young man is going to be apprenticed to a master plumber. Uh, he has no license. He is under complete control of his guild master. They actually call it a guild. That's how they work. But under that master, my friend is going to partner in the work. And, and I've talked to him a couple times about this job change. He does not mind the fact that he has unquestioning obedience that is required from him by, by his uh, overseer because he greatly admires this guy. He really admires this master under whom he is training. That comes somewhat close to doulos. You see, Roman slave masters had, as you would imagine, being masters, they had complete legal authority over their slaves. But slavery was different than the way we think of it. It wasn't racial. It was not permanent. Uh, a person could earn their way out of slavery. Many, many did. Uh, just as my student is going to learn and grow into his own practice, so a Roman doulos could serve well and earn his independence. However, get this. This is really important. If they had a really great master, and, and many were, that's why they signed on to be doulos. Most Roman freedmen, the majority of Roman freedmen, stayed on willingly as employees with that master. They partnered in. In fact, they very often ran the business, became very wealthy running the business of their master. They chose to stay and work for that master. All right? Paul and Timothy are delighted to be under Jesus' master authority forever. They are what we should be. They are bond slaves who are partnering with Jesus in his work. And make no mistake, they are slaves of Christ Jesus. That slavery makes all the difference. Jesus boils life down really, really simply and really beautifully in John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8, verse 34, here's what, here's what Jesus says about slavery, okay? The real slavery of life, the worst slavery of life. Everybody read with me. John 8, 34. Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. What a, what a deep and telling way to say everybody. Everyone who commits sin. That's everybody. All humans are sinners. Everyone is a spiritual slave to sin. Our soul's default is to be enslaved to sin. Yet, I don't have time to walk you through all of it in the Bible, but I'd be happy to privately if you wish. When a person trusts Jesus as Savior, they have an incredible privilege that is brought to them. Oh, oh we, we are enslaved to sin, all of us. That's our default setting. But when somebody believes on Jesus as Savior, you know what happens? They have an opportunity to get a brand new master. They have an opportunity to become enslaved to Jesus instead. We get to leave behind slavery to sin. We instead get to be doulos of the true master. Now, if you're anything like me, that sounds nice, but your pride raises up a little, and you find yourself thinking something like this. Well, I want to be my own master, right? I mean, okay, Jesus is right. Slavery to sin is awful. True, true. But is it any better to be bonded to Jesus? What about charting my own path, right? Am I the only one who thinks that way? Yeah, Guys, the satanic lie that was whispered to our first parents still echoes in our ears. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own masters. But it is a false premise. Listen carefully. Counterintuitively but undeniably, the person who yields to Jesus' lordship achieves greatness. The supposedly self-made person never establishes anything of lasting value, ever. For example, arguably the greatest leader who ever walked on this earth was Moses. Let me just give you three points about why Moses was such an amazing leader. He, he, he set more people free from physical slavery than anyone else ever did. He established the one nation that is going to last beyond all other countries and kingdoms. And he spoke with God. The only person ever described this way. He spoke with God face to face as a person talks to their friend. That's Moses, right? But look at how the last book in the Bible describes Moses. Revelation chapter 15. They sang the song of God's servant, Moses. God's servant, Moses. What's the word servant there? It's what? What Greek word is it? It's doulos, right? Servant's a fairly questionable translation. Moses was God's slave. Moses achieved so much in life. He left an eternal legacy precisely because he bonded himself to Yahweh. Same thing's true for Paul and Timothy. And the same can and should be true for each of us. Amen? Right side of our notes, we point out that the people that Paul and Tim are writing are saints. Look on the right side of our notes, they are saints. The church members in Philippi are called hagios. We don't know exactly how it was pronounced, but it's probably hagios. Uh, saints is a great translation, although the word saint is so muddied by the mistaken medieval idea, the, the bad medieval idea that only some Christians make it to sainthood. That's not true at all. All believers in Jesus are called hagios. We are all saints. That, that, that means holy ones. Specifically, hagios means someone who is set aside for God. It is a, it is a positional term. 
Hagios describes a Christian's position in Christ, their heavenly position. Scripture says they're in Christ. They are agios. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. Um, do, you see, do you see this? It's a beautiful bookmark made for me by a lovely young lady, and uh, it says, from Chloe to Pastor Wayne. Isn't that pretty? Right? Very nice. It was made for me. It was set aside for me and given to me. It has my name on it, right? What if I take my copy of the Black Prince and I put the bookmark inside there? Where's the bookmark? Where is it? It's not a trick question. Where is it? It's in, I'm not a magician. It's, it's, it's in the book, right? It's there. It's in the book. It's in the book. That's where its position is. What if I take my book and I place it in some really high, wonderful, exalted place like this? Where's the bookmark? Where is it? It's in the book. It's in the book. You're in Christ who is seated in the heavenlies, right? You're in Christ. That's your position. Hagios. That's the case for anyone who has trusted Jesus as Savior. Not only at Philippi, folks, this, the New Testament rings with this truth over and over and over. Believers in Jesus are made holy. We are set aside for God, and we are placed securely in Jesus forever. Now, stop here for just a second. There's two truths we've already run into in just the first few words of this text, and we need to review them for a moment. If you review them, you're faced with two very important questions. Number one, am I a saint in Jesus? It's a simple but very profound question. If I trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the means of my salvation, I am made holy by God. My position is in Jesus, in heaven forever. All God's people said, am I a saint? Second question, don't stop there. Ask the second question that prompted by this text. Am I a slave of Jesus? It's, being a hagios is great. It is great, but it does not de facto make one a doulos. I have to choose to be like Paul and Timothy, to follow Jesus' will here on earth as his slave. Do I? Am I a doulos? Okay, the heavenly position in Christ is for those recipients and us, and the original recipients of this letter, their earthly location is at Philippi. Let me give you a brief background for our context, just things we need to know to understand the book of Philippians. Uh, Philip II, that's this guy, Philip II of Macedon, he found this, uh, this little place called Crenides, which is Greek for spring, and he said, hey, this is a pretty cool place. I like it. It's got strategy. It's got position. And so he conquered it, kind of. He showed up with a, a bunch of soldiers, and it was a small town, and he said, hey, I want to conquer you. And, uh, but there was no bloodshed because they said, okay, that's the deal. We'll... we'll We'll join your little kingdom, uh, but in return, we'd like some things. So in 356 B.C., this town became part of his growing Macedonian empire, which was the empire of Philip II and his son Alexander, who's very famous, and the other kings of Macedon. But here was the deal they made, and this is really important to understand the book of Philippians. The deal they made was they kept their own local assembly. They had their own lawmaking assembly, and that was going to be binding on citizens of Philippi. It's very important to understand that there's an independent spirit in the Philippians, and that's going to be important to understand the text. The Macedonian kings did a number of really important things. We don't have time to go into all of them. There's just one that was really important for Philippi's future. For Philippi's future. Uh, by the way, he renamed the town after himself, Philippi. He was a very humble guy, uh, Philip II. <laughs> Um, just here south and west of the town, there was a big swamp, and they did a beautiful job draining it and turning it into, uh, into flatland, uh, very fertile farmland. 
that becomes really significant. 168 B.C., the Romans conquered all of Macedonia. Now, what they did was they divided Macedonia into four really weirdly shaped uh, provinces that were all part of the Roman state of Macedonia. Uh, Thessalonica, you've heard about Thessalonica. There's two letters written to it in our Bible, First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, that was the capital of all of Macedonia. Amphipolis uh, is right here. That was the capital of the state, the particular state of which, the province of which, Philippi was a part, and Philippi remained a, a, an important, fairly wealthy, but really small town, population about 2,000 people. But Philippi's fortunes would very soon change. A little over 100 years later, uh, there was a great civil war in Rome. It was sparked by the murder of Julius Caesar uh, that we all learned from Shakespeare's very wonderful but unhistorical play, uh, Julius Caesar. After Caesar was killed, there was an 18-year-old kid named Octavian. He was Caesar's named heir, his, uh, his inheritor of his place. And Octavian put together a second triumvirate, and amazingly, shockingly really, to most of the world, they managed to corner Cassius and Brutus, the, the two main leaders of the rebellion against Caesar, they cornered them at Philippi. And on that piece of land that used to be swampy and was now made flat uh, 150 years earlier, uh, or 250 years earlier, they won an amazing battle. Octavian proved himself to be a pretty fine general. They were so thankful for the help that the Philippians, the city of Philippi gave them, because the city of Philippi threw their lot in with Octavian and, and those guys. Boy, they chose well, because after they won that war, they granted full citizenship, full Roman citizenship to every single Philippian. Every Philippian citizen became a Roman citizen. Do you realize what a big deal that was? That meant that, meant that they had all the rights and privileges of citizenship and uh, which were wonderful under Roman law, but and they were exempt from almost all taxation. <laughs> that would be sweet. Okay. Um, after Octavian triumphed in the civil wars and he ended up being named Augustus by the Senate, he remembered Philippi even further. Here's what he did. He sent a bunch of old soldiers, retired soldiers, back to Philippi to live. In fact, he renamed the city uh, Colonia Augusta Iulia Philippensis. Uh, everybody still called it Philippi. Now, interestingly, and this is really important for understanding the book as well, lots of historians, most historians think that the, the people that he settled at Philippi were Praetorians. Now, the Praetorian Guard was a very large group of soldiers that was the royal guard that surrounded the emperor. They played a very large role in Roman politics. And it's important in understanding Philippians and how Paul writes to them to know that, that there, were, there were apparently lots of old Praetorians that lived at Philippi. Okay, in the Bible, Acts chapter 16, verse 12, Luke calls Philippi protos. It's weird. Protos means first or, or chief or leading. Um, it really seems odd to call Philippi protos. Remember, Thessalonica is a big town. That's a, it's a big city. That's the capital of the whole, of the whole state and uh, of the whole province. And then Amphipolis is the capital of this particular state within the province. Why would he call, why would he call Philippi protos? It seems to be because Philippi was really wealthy, it was of outsized import, and it was the only Roman colony in the whole area. Get this. Ready for this? Last time I studied Philippians was 1999. And, uh, and I always, I'm studying on my own and I'm reading and just doing for my own growth like all of us do, and, uh, and I'm making notes in my Bible, my study Bible as I'm studying. And in 1999, I was reading Acts chapter 16, verse 12, to learn about Philippians as I was studying Philippians. And at that time, my adopted hometown, Frisco, had 28,000 residents. 
That was all that was in the city of Frisco, 28,000. When I was studying for this series, when I was getting ready, I took out my old study Bible and I found that note. And next to Acts 16, 12, here's what I had written in my Bible. Plano's bigger, it's home to more corporations. It's Amphipolis. McKinney is the provincial capital, it's home to the courts, Thessalonica. But Frisco has determination, wealth, and phenomenal growth advantages due to accessible roads, just like Philippi. Like Philippi, I wrote, Frisco will become very significant in its own right. I'm a prophet. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not a prophet. So that's the city, all right? Now, let's briefly get to know how they grew as the church there. 50 A.D., the Apostle Paul receives a vision where he's instructed to leave Asia, where he's been working, and cross over to Europe, to Macedonia. This is during his second missionary journey. So Paul, Luke, Silas, and Timothy, who was with him, arrive at Philippi. Now, they get to Philippi, and it appears there that the, uh, the Jewish population is too small to have a synagogue. He had to have 10 males to have a Jewish synagogue. So they went to where you would go. They went to the river outside of town because they assumed, rightly, that that's where the God-fearing people would go to do ablution, to do the, uh, the ritual bathing and to pray. They go there, uh, Paul shares Christ and a number of people trust and become Christians and are baptized. First among them was a lady named Lydia. She probably moved to Philippi for her import business. Uh, Lydia was an importer of very expensive purple dyed cloth from Thyatira. Uh, she was really wealthy, lived in a Roman villa. Uh, by the way, in, in case you don't know this, Lydia was almost certainly a nickname. Um, it, 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 was, it was not uncommon for a woman who was from uh, Thyatira to be called Lydia because Thyatira was the, was the capital of an ancient kingdom called the Kingdom of Lydia, and Thyatirans were very proud of their old Kingdom of Lydia, so it's probably a nickname. We don't know what her real name was, if it is a nickname, but she was already a proselyte to Judaism, and she became the very first Christian in Europe. Not long after that, Paul exercised demons from this poor slave girl in Philippi. Richard Mellick uh, captures the breathless movement of this scene. Look what he says. The masters of this demon-possessed girl made considerable money from her ability to predict the future. Paul encountered her, and through the gospel, the demon was exercised. The masters, realizing they would lose their living, dragged the missionaries to court to have them silenced. This was Paul's first Roman trial. The charges included causing a disturbance and introducing a foreign religion. Paul and Silas were stripped of their clothing, beaten with rods, and thrown into a dungeon with common criminals. Folks, this was an illegal beating and imprisonment because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, something Philippians surely understood. So while they're in prison, Paul and Silas became very bitter. They grumbled, they whined. They understandably moaned all night because they'd been beaten and they were in pain. They just complained understandably, right? Isn't that true? Anybody know the story? Is that what happened? No, not at all. Acts chapter 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake, the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, all of us are here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Paul was a prophet. <clears throat> so cool. Now I want you to look at the start of the Philippian church. Luke gives us three stories that I just summarized for you. 
to help us understand, uh, 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 feel for this, this whole church. Here's the exemplary people we meet. There are many others, but these are the ones we're introduced to that come to Christ at Philippi. We have a wealthy female Gentile convert to Judaism, Lydia. We've got an impoverished female Gentile slave. And then we've got a middle-class male Roman government official. This is a really diverse church, and it is founded in dramatic conflict. But it's founded on joy. They were not complaining in that jail. They were singing hymns to God. There was joy, joy no matter the circumstances. That is the founding heartbeat of this church. So the letter is addressed to a beloved church, showing them how they can continue to enjoy the Lord, how they can find joy as they build to last. My friend Dr. Hayes puts it this way. In Philippians, we find ourselves dealing with giving generously, living courageously, maintaining unity, being content, seeking humility, serving sacrificially, Rejoicing instead of worrying, making peace instead of grumbling, and trusting in Christ's righteousness rather than seeking our own, close quote. Now, go back to verse 1. Let's read one of the funniest lines ever in all of Paul's writing, and it will explain to you why I opened with the teasing from my pledge brothers. Uh, go back to verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. He says, including the elders and deacons. This is great humor here. Paul says, greet all the saints in the church. And then he adds, including the elders and deacons. That's funny. That is funny. Of course, the church leaders are saints. They're Christians. They're included in the whole group. But, but the text teases them as if to say, and this, is not, this isn't a zinger. This isn't the kind of ugliness where you pick on somebody and they say, oh, just kidding. No, this, this is... This is joyful, playful teasing with somebody. Greet the saints. And oh yeah, greet those dorks who lead the church too. That's just awesome. A few years ago, our elders uh, were reading a book summary and it mentioned uh, this fact that one of the biggest insults in the mid-19th century was to call a man a puppy. A lot of duels were fought over somebody being called a puppy in the 19th century. For the next few years, I was called a puppy at nearly every elders meeting. Nearly every time we got together, hey puppy, hey puppy, how are you? That's what Paul's doing. He's calling the elders and deacons at Philippi puppies, and he does it because he loves them. This is awesome. You know, he never teases like that with anyone else in print except one person, Titus. He does tease like that with Titus, including the elders and deacons. That's a riot. It tells us the apostle is really close to these folks. The exact terms used are episkopos and diakonos. Uh, episkopos is a guardian. That's an, an overseer who is at the, at the high level overseeing the general welfare of something. Um, uh, diakonos is uh, a, a caregiving person, somebody who is involved particularly in administrative and, and physical duties caring for people. Uh, in earliest Greek use, by the way, diakonos meant to wait tables. And it was not, this is fascinating, it was not a positive term in Greek. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, Plato disparages diakonos, calls it a lowly thing to be diakonos. The one exception in Plato and every other writer was service to the state, to the city-state. You see, for somebody to be uh, fighting or working for the good of the state, that's the only time you ever see an ancient Greek writer say that diakonos is positive. But, but what happens here is it becomes positive. 
And that tells us a lot about what the first churches were thinking when they called these set-aside servants diakonos. By the way, that means anybody who serves in the church, set aside to, to minister in the church, like so many of you, diakonos. Why the positive change? Why does this become something noble? I think there are two things that explain it. Number one, Jesus made serving noble. The God of all stooped to serve and wash his disciples' feet. So, so serving is now something that's really exalted. This is what God does. Secondly, they are serving the state. It's actually within the usage that an ancient Greek would have understood, a classical Greek would have understood. They are ser- the Christian has a new passport. We, we do. We ultimately serve our true state, which is the heavenly state. That's not to say we can't be patriotic and enjoy our countries on earth, but it's not our home. We have a brand new passport, and when we serve our true state, it is a noble part of fighting for God's church. Remember, the Philippians are independent, right? They're very proud of their assembly, and they are very proud of having elders and deacons, especially when their town wasn't even big enough to have enough Jews for for a synagogue. But they've got enough Christians to have elders and deacons. They're very proud of that. Paul and Timothy are apparently very proud of them as well. That's why they're teasing them. That's why they're enjoying playing with them here. And teasing, listen, I know for some of you this is very difficult, but especially among males, Teasing is how many, many, many people show affection. Vigard Peterson says it really well in the quote I put in your notes. Look what he says. Men are cool like that. Guys like to sort of play a little rough sometimes. It's a way to express your love. If you can't raise your voice to a male friend, if you can't be a little assertive, you don't really trust him to accept your honesty, and you don't really believe he's got genuine affection for you. Real, usually male friends, let things slide, take it in stride, because we're just that confident in each other. Now, I know often females are not like this, but to understand this text, everyone, male and female, needs to grasp the affection behind Paul's joke. It's just like my buddies who were texting me saying, hey, dork, let's do some good, unlike whatever you're doing right now. He knows what I do, and he was having fun. That's what Paul's doing here. Now, if you're still having a hard time understanding how the apostle could tease someone, Let me show you a little piece that our drama team made to help us understand. You're going to see the difference between how a group of women greets each other and how a group of men does. Take a look. Let's make fun of your clothes, let's make fun of your age, let's, and, and, it was, and it was genuinely done in, in love. The women showed love too. The way they showed love was by saying, how's your mom? Oh, you look lovely. Um, so it, it's different. And that, that, that's not to say that women can't, can't be rough with their affection, too. They certainly can. But this kind, of, this kind of laughing and sharing joy and teasing, we see this in Greek and Roman literature all the way back. And in fact, I, I would tell you this. If you want to understand what the ancients thought about friendship, Being able to tease and laugh and share joy with people was just as maybe even more important to them than the things that we think of as important for friendship, trustworthiness and constancy and and loyalty. They really, really cared that you could 
play around with each other. By the way, here's an example of a female doing the same thing. One of the most famous plays in the world's history is uh, Electra by Euripides. And Euripides has a brilliant line, Electra, uh, she looks up at one point, it's kind of a dramatic moment in the play, she looks at her best friend and she says this with all love and affection, she goes, I have long feared that thou wert not right in thy senses. <laughs> that's, that's teasing, that's affection. The point is that we can already see this is a really joyful book. In fact, this is the happiest text Paul ever wrote. I was dialoguing with our pulpit team about Philippians, and I wrote them this. I said, uh, this church obviously brought joy to the apostle. Maybe Philippi made Paul more joyful because he never spent extended time there as he did in Ephesus and Corinth. <laughs> Seriously, the apostle had extensive communication with the Philippians, and he seems to have known them quite well. It is an amazing thing a Christian leader to know you well and still find joy in you. Amen. The whole letter reminds me of that old hit song by the turtles, so happy together. Right? These people are joyful together. I can't see me. They're really enjoying each other and we should be the same. So let me ask you a question. What are the joy thieves in your life? What is getting in the way of you finding joy in the Lord together? Uh, Warren Wearsby thought on this as he studied Philippians, and he listed in his book four common thieves of joy. I thought these were pretty good. He said, tough circumstances steal our joy, so do things and worry and people. Oh, and for people, he had a, a, really, <laughs> a really great illustration <clears throat> that he shared, probably without his daughter's permission. Um, he said, my daughter jumped off the school bus as it stopped in front of our house and slammed her way through the front door. She marched defiantly up the stairs into her room and again slammed the door all the time she was muttering under her breath, people, 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 people. <laughs> I went to the door and knocked softly, may I come in? She replied, no. I tried again, but she said even more belligerently, no. I asked, why can't I come in, hon? Her answer, because you're a people too. Oh, so true. Tell me, which one of these uh, steals your joy? Anybody here find that people, people can, they d you do, you let them steal your joy. It happens. Okay. How about worry? Worry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Things like having to replace your roof again after a hailstorm. <laughs> okay. Tough circumstances, really hard things in life can steal your joy. Anybody? Okay, sure. A lot of us are multiple offenders on that. Um, each of those joy thieves, listen, each of those joy thieves is going to meet its match in Philippians. God's going to show us how to live joyfully through all circumstances, all things, all worry, and yes, even all people. Here's what we're going to learn to do. This is the goal right here. Here's what we're going to learn over the next few weeks. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Read it with me, everybody. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. All God's people said? Amen. That captures the premise of our series. Uh, here's, why, here's why we're studying this. Uh, the premise. We sometimes think things are so bad that joyful living is impossible. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ten years before this letter was penned, Paul was beaten and illegally arrested in Philippi just for speaking about Jesus. Yet he sang thanksgiving hymns to the Lord and he saw a wonderful, enduring church begun. Now, as he writes to Philippi, Nero, <laughs> Nero is on the emperor's throne with Paul in prison in Rome awaiting trial. Nonetheless, his letter is full of joy. Most importantly, it teaches us that by God's grace and through the love of the brethren, we can, in any circumstance, enjoy building to last. 
Dr. Wiersbe put it this way, if you master the truths in Philippians, you should be filled with joy as you live the Christian life. Would you like to be filled with joy? Me too. And that joyful process begins with verse 2, where Paul and Timothy talk about God's bestowal of grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the Greek charis, that's a typical Gentile blessing. Irene, peace, alludes to shalom, the great Jewish prayer, to this multinational congregation. By the way, the congregation is very similar to the one we have here. You got you got people from all over the world that worship with you every Sunday. I mean, the passports in this, in this church are from lots and lots, I don't know, almost two dozen different countries, right? And, and what he says to them is, there is this gift to everyone from God. Grace, charis, a Gentile blessing. Shalom, Irene, a Jewish blessing. And this blessing is deeper and much more important than momentary happiness. This is eternal grace and peace. And just like the Philippians, we have this grace and peace. They are ours. They are granted to us directly through God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Are you lacking joy in your life? From time to time, each of us finds ourselves in a seemingly joyless desert. To fight through, one of the most important steps is to remind ourselves of truth. The truth is we have grace We are given God's undeserved favor forever. We have peace, shalom with God. Grace and peace are critical for experiencing joy. In fact, you cannot experience joy without grace and peace. And they're yours. You have them, Christian. This isn't some temporary ceasefire kind of peace. This doesn't come from the UN. It comes directly from the Father, our Father. Now that language, Father, harkens back to the Lord's Prayer. Remember, Jesus taught this prayer a number of times. Here's, here's Luke's, uh, Luke's description. Uh, Luke 11. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Father. God's my Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. God, our Father, is the source of grace and peace. He makes it so his people can can pass the tests of life. That's the meaning of that euphemism there, lead us not into temptation. It means, help me pass the test. God provides what we need, our daily bread. He forgives our sin through Jesus. He is holy, and yet he's our Father. All God's people said... Joy flows from grace and peace, which are ours from the Father and through Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Jesus, who is our Savior and Lord. He is Messiah, Christ Jesus. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team wrote a great comment on verse 2. He said, this places Jesus on equal footing with the Father as the source of our grace and peace. So true. It is through Jesus the triune God brings grace and peace. God the Son, Messiah Jesus, died for sin, and then he conquered death. And everyone who believes in him is set aside, made hagios, made a a, a saint because he is the Savior. And Jesus is also Lord. In fact, joy from grace and peace is predicated on Jesus' lordship. Remember, Remember how Paul and Timothy were proud to be slaves of their Lord, of Jesus Christ the Master? That is the attitude, that's the attitude you have to have if you want to experience joy, period. Jesus is the Lord. To find joy in life, we have to respond to him according to who he really is. So let's do so right now. Let's pray. Pray with me. Friend, talk to God who is with us right now, who is with you. 
And remember the great question from the text. Am I a saint in Jesus? Am I hagios? If you have never trusted Jesus, if you have never received him as Savior, do so right now. Tell the truth about your slavery to sin. Thank God that Jesus, Jesus opens for you the book of life. He opens it up. He has a place for your name. He has a place for you to be placed right there forever. Sealed in him. Trust him as your savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Now, for those who are Christians, let's ask the second great question sparked by this scripture. Am I a slave of Jesus? Think. Being a saint, hagios, is great, but it doesn't de facto make one a doulos. Right now, repent of your self-leadership. Repent of it. Commit to follow Jesus as his doulos. Do you, want, do you want to leave an eternal imprint? Then you must be a doulos. Do you want joy? You must be a doulos. Follow Jesus. Father, we commit to follow you by your grace and for your glory in everything, including the offering we're about to take, which is a wonderful test right away, uh, a wonderful reminder that I am your slave and everything I have is yours. And you provide so abundantly. Thank you for the privilege of giving to you. Lord, we love you and we ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.